less than 2% of MPs are disabled and yet these are the people who are creating policy. These are the people yeah. who, by and rights, are dictating the way that the country goes. Hi, I'm Brooke Melhouse. Welcome to Disabled and Proud, the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week, the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled and why they're proud to be themselves. Hello, Celia. Welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I'm actually, I think this will be a really interesting chat because I can't wait to talk about the work that you do, particularly surrounding the Disability Policy Centre. And I think it'll be really Mm -hmm. interesting to have a conversation about it because from what I know and what I've read, it's the first think tank of its type. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be super interesting to learn all about it. Definitely coming from a unique perspective, I think. There's not many people kind of in this sphere that have that kind of disabled experience. So I think we're probably going to have a chat from a very unique perspective. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So the first question that I ask absolutely every single guest is, how do you refer to your disability? So I, at this point in my life, I now identify as a disabled individual. So I have a congenital condition, which meant I was born with it. And growing up, um I never identified as disabled I was just sick and ill and a sickly child um but my disability is called Lowy's Deep Syndrome and it's very weird and wonderful and not many people know about it it's a connected tissue disorder which affects all the organs in your body so I don't have enough elasticity which basically means that my organs haven't grown properly and I bend and break and snap um and all my organs are sort of slowly shutting down on me so Uh I'm kind of very much in a degenerative position but staying positive as I can at the at the time that I'm at now yeah yeah I think that that's it's so interesting that how people who do have chronic conditions or like you said like congenital don't necessarily always identify as disabled immediately and it's almost like it is a bit of a journey to be like oh actually no I am I am disabled and I can use that like identifier as such and that you know you referred to yourself as a sickly child because I think there's a lot of people that I've spoken to who have also been like actually I just thought I was sick and yeah. it wasn't actually oh I'm, I'm disabled and you know from being sick to disabled there's not really like a clear-cut line and there's there's never going to be a clear-cut line mm. but people don't know when they can almost cross it and like suddenly use the term disabled and I was wondering how did you come to use the term disabled and how did that manifest for you? I think the reason I didn't use it as a child was no one ever said the word to me I was always had a chronic illness and when you're trying to explain something to a child you don't really throw throw words out like disability you just say oh you're unwell yeah because everybody spoke to me like I was a child because I was a child that word was never kind of brought into play and also there wasn't you know 25 years ago I feel like there has been a lot more representation where we are now when there was 25 30 years ago I didn't really see anybody on TV like growing up watching CBBC or anything like that we didn't really have disabled presenters like we do now but actually I hadn't really come across the word until I sort of hit my teenage years and someone said to me oh have you thought about applying for a blue badge and I said to myself well I'm not disabled so why would I need a blue badge and then he said, well, you very much are and you very much need it. And that's when I started kind of on that journey was it took somebody else to stimulate me just because I hadn't come across the word and what it actually meant. You know, I was guilty of it as a child thinking, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm not in a wheelchair and I'm not blind, so I'm not disabled because there is that 
entrenched stereotype of what it means to be disabled. And if you grow up around people who, you know, subconsciously fit into that stereotype and subconsciously using that stereotype, that word's not going to be used to describe you. You're kind of on a journey to actually realize, oh, yeah, no, I am. I am under that bracket and I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that obviously the sign in the UK, and I'm pretty sure, and I know I've said this before, Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty much world over. The sign for disability is the wheelchair. You know, it's the blue badge and the white wheelchair. And I remember thinking, I'm not like that. Like my disability isn't like that. So I don't, I don't identify with that. And I think, and I think it's something like only 2% of the UK's disability population disabled population only two percent of them are wheelchair users Mm. so it's not an image that actually fits the the, like group of people that we're talking about so no wonder people have a journey to like use that and identify Mm. with that phrase and that term because because the picture doesn't do the job (laughs) I think as well like if as I've got older my disability is becoming more and more visible so Mm. I've kind of lived on both sides of the conversation of having a visible and a non-visible disability and I think if you fall into that non-visible disability as well it's very difficult to fit to not sit there and think oh yeah but I'm not like properly disabled and I used to say that to myself all the time I was like yeah but people are so much more disabled than I am what does that even mean you know disability is so infinitely diverse and there's such a beautiful variety of disability that we use this one umbrella of word to describe 20% of the population but actually within that 20% we're so diverse and none of our experiences are the same. Even if I meet somebody that has the same condition as me, what they've been through and what I've been through have been completely different based on our upbringings or, you know, the experiences that we've had that we're all sort of lumped together under one disability umbrella, but actually our experiences within that umbrella are so different, but it's, you know, and kind of linking it into policy that what we see is happening is that, one or two people are taken and they're used as the point of consultation. So when a new law or new legislation is brought in, they mm-hmm. sit, people sit there and say, well, you know, we did consult disabled people. We brought five people into a room together and we asked them what they want and said, you know, is this train accessible? And we're sort of sat here saying, you know, that's a starting point. You know, that's excellent. Yeah. We've reached that point where that's now happening. But those five people do not represent you know, the infinite diversity of disability if you're going to consult you have to do it properly because what you're going to end up doing is if you just take one person's opinion you're going to block out so many other people yeah. that actually you could end up making a situation more inaccessible by taking that one person's voice as the only kind of parameters of option for that situation so you have to be so careful in those moments of consultation that you're doing it properly and effectively mm-hmm. and talking to a group of people And that ties in really nicely to what I was going to go on to next is that with your disability and your own experiences, how does that play in your career and the career paths that you've chosen and and gone down? I think it's kind of, it's it's twofold Mm -hmm. in the sense that the first element of it was, you know, I'm so driven by the experiences that I've had and not wanting people to have the same experiences that I've had, the situations that I've been in, I hope you know, nobody else has to go through that medical gaslighting and not being believed as a child and not being able to access the things I need to access at university or during school or whatever it may be. 
But I think the other element of that is I find it very, very difficult to work in a traditional working environment. I have a blood infusion every single day that switches off at 9 a.m. and needs to go back on again at 4 4 Uh p.m. You know, you try and find me an employer that will allow me to work in an office very, very short hours, but will also be understanding that some days I can come in, some days I can't. You know, Mm -hmm. I've got eight medical appointments a month. And there isn't that kind of flexible understanding of, but I can work on Sunday instead. Like that, yeah. that's fine. That's it. That's totally fine. So I think it's a combination of the two things. Or I can't work in a traditional environment. And that kind of led me and Chloe, who I set up the Disability Policy Centre with, we were sat there and we both worked in politics and policy previously. And we were getting so frustrated that people weren't listening to us and people uh-huh. weren't listening to the disabled voice in general. And what was happening, it was like I, I mentioned, you know, consultation was happening on a small scale mm-hmm. or a project was launched about accessibility and about disability and it would last three weeks and then it was done and it was on to the next thing. There was no consistent voice sort of pounding the government and pounding yeah. parliament from all sides saying you need to listen to this. You know, the data just hasn't happened. There hasn't been that collection of data. If you Google how many female founders are there in the UK? You're going to get a nice, lovely list. You're going to get lots of government initiatives. You're going to get lots of award ceremonies that have happened. If you Google the stable founders in the UK, you're going to come up with individual people. That's fantastic. There's no data on it. There's yeah. no data on anything like this because it's just not been done because people don't realize how many disabled people there are in the UK. And mm-hmm. a massive driving factor is, is the lack of representation. Less than 2% of MPs are disabled but over 20% of the population is disabled. And there's so much conversation about, you know, making sure parliament is equal men and women and making sure there's representation of the BAME community and sexuality and gender. But where's disability in that conversation as well? It's been very left behind. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think what you say just then is that less than 2% of MPs are disabled. And yet Mm. these are the people who are creating policy. These are the people who, you know, by and rights are dictating the -hmm. way that the country goes. And when you've got 20% of a population being represented by 2% of the people who are are, um, like navigating the ship as such, like no wonder disabled people are left on the back benches. And, and you know, I I don't feel awful saying that either because Mm. that's factual. That's not me picking out like a random piece of information, like it's factual that disabled people are left behind on a daily basis, especially when it comes to accessibility, especially when it comes to representation. And like to hear the numbers, it's, Mm. it's almost scary because you think 2% of MPs, that is like nothing. That's absolute pittance. I know. And the thing with that kind of statistic as well is you know, it is a starting point and it's great, but also those individuals don't want to be pigeonholed as just talking yeah. about disability because they are disabled and that, you know, they have to permanently tout the flag and, and wave it about yeah. and say, have you thought about disability? Because those individuals are in that role for a reason, because they are talented and they've, they've worked there and they've been chosen by their, popu- their, their yeah. populace in their communities, that it's not their job to just be talking about disability just because they are disabled yeah it, it doesn't work like that they should be able to but those individuals are having to carry the wagon for us because there's nobody else to do it and I'll give you a kind of shocking fact is that the house of commons is so inaccessible that we could never have a front bench mp that was disabled or had a mobility issue because it's not accessible so if you are successful in becoming a member of parliament and you identify 
as being disabled, you can only be a backbencher because you cannot physically get yourself to the to to stand and talk, which is just shocking. You can <laughs> never be speaker of the house. You can never get yourself to the dispatch box. It it's shocking. And like if you put into sort of statistical, I always like to put things in statistics to kind of drive home how shocking it is. There are currently eight members of parliament that we know of that have declared they identify as disabled. There could be more that haven't said so, but we are aware of eight. There should be 131 if it was equally representative. If the Houses of Commons as an organisation, as a building is already struggling with its accessibility, you ask anybody that's ever been there, it's a nightmare. How How is it going to accommodate 131 disabled members of parliament? It's, it's not going to be able to. But this is the thing is that my massive kind of slogan line that I always use is that we should be being proactive, not reactive. We shouldn't be waiting. We should just be doing it and sitting there thinking, okay, in 100 years time, hopefully we will be more electively representative. What can we do now? It's utilize the restoration and renewal program to make it more accessible, but it's not happening because no one's thinking about it, which is just when you say it like that, it's shocking. Currently, we can't have a prime minister has a physical impairment because the dispatch box is inaccessible that's shocking <laughs> yeah <laughs> like I'm I laughing know. because if I don't laugh I might cry because yeah. like that is just it's um it's genuinely unbelievable but also on the flip side it's not unbelievable either no, like not. yeah so like, I can believe I have no issues and like I've seen it I can believe it but at the same time, like we are sat in 2022, mm-hmm. that that's the reality of disabled politics in Britain. Like that yeah. is the that is the reality of it. We don't have accessible act, like we've got no accessibility. There's nothing that's going to make it any more accessible, like you said, unless people start to use you know restoration programs to sort that out. But we're not yeah. there because there's not enough people to shout and scream about exactly. it. Exactly, just... exactly, exactly. And I think. You know, it's it's such when you say something like that, people go, oh, my God, no, that is really bad. And we're sort of sat there from a policy perspective saying, why have people not had these conversations or these conversations have been had, you know, with activists speaking up and saying about it. But why has there previously been this mentality of people not listening to what's being said because it's so shocking? And it all goes back to this. I, I, I kind of fundamentally believe that when you talk about discrimination of disabled people, you know, 98% of it is unconscious and indirect discrimination. People don't realize they're doing uh-huh. it. There are those bad eggs in the world that are actively don't like disabled people. But I think so much of it is coming from unconscious bias and yeah. just mentality that people have been brought up with that's innate within our society that we are trying so hard to break down. But I always say, you know, it's it's 2022. It's not 1922. Yeah. When we talk about the women's right movement, you know, we say, look how far we've come in 100 years. Disability is actually relatively in its infancy in terms of other social movements. But the point I'm saying is that it isn't 1922. We should know that what's happening right now is not acceptable. Women in 1920s had to fight so hard to get where we are now that we should have learned from those mistakes and realized that when such a large social group is all calling for the same action to happen, why are we approaching it like it was 100 years ago? We should be sat there saying, let's not repeat the, you know, the mistakes of yeah. our history and taking so long to listen to these voices. But that's still what's happening is we're being treated like it was 100 years ago. And we do just have to go on our, our 200 year social yeah. movement journey like everybody yeah. else has been doing. 
but it's not it, you know we're not 200 years ago we should know yeah. better in society but apparently we don't no well, well it's, it seems like everybody's just pl- putting the blinkers on and just yeah carrying carrying on forward yeah. and and for the people who don't know what the disability policy center is could you give a quick rundown mm-hmm. of, of the think tank and also what like what a think tank is yeah <laughs> so we operate in the, the policy sphere so when you're talking about the implementation of legislation and new government regulations or funding schemes whatever any action that the government takes yeah that needs to be have policy behind it and the reason we kind of came into existence is we noticed a real gap between the campaigning space and what government were actually doing Mm -hmm. that there were some fantastic campaigns and organizations and charities out there that were all saying the same thing but for some reason government wasn't listening and a campaign can only be so effective at the core of making sure that disability rights movement progresses is we need legislative protections yeah we need things where we can take to court and say you know this 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 and this has happened to me and it's not okay we need that binding legislative protection but what we were noticing is that what these charities and organizations were saying weren't being implemented as as binding regulations for people so what we did is we myself and Chloe came together and we've been we've been writing policy papers and doing research and collecting data that nobody's ever collected before yeah. to, to almost to prove our point to say you know everybody's saying this we've now collected the data and these are the 20 recommendations that we are putting forward mm-hmm. to implement what everybody's saying so it's almost like a bridge between the charitable and the campaigning sector and government yeah. so creating that kind of streamline of conversation so that there is that direct connection and actually policymakers sit up and listen and say okay yeah no what they're saying is, is pretty valid and we've got the data to back it up there needs to be legislative protection here for disabled people because at the end of the day you know that's so key to making sure we end discrimination and we end ableism is making sure that people are, are physically unable to do these actions without yeah. fear of repercussion yeah and I think that that's so key is that and it's almost ending ableism because it can't happen yeah you know because we as society and I'm not talking about myself and you I'm talking about you know the greater we is that we allow ableism to happen on a Mm -hmm. daily basis and that could Mm -hmm. be conscious or unconscious and actually nine times out of ten I'd probably say it's unconscious and that's just systemic but when it does become conscious and then you're still unable to act on it that's when it's a real problem because you know there are so many barriers to entry as it is for disabled people in life in general that's like you know work home play you don't need to like add on top of that but without Mm. being able to remove systemic ableism how do you do that exactly exactly and I think you know it's very easy and things kind of having been in politics and working from behind Mm -hmm. the scenes I know how the sausage is made and I know what happens yeah you know one of the big statistics that's being pushed at the moment is the fact that disabled people and employment has gone up you know that's fantastic that that's that's brilliant you know more yeah. disabled people in work that's exactly what we want it it shows that more opportunities are being provided however when you dig down into that statistic what are we actually seeing we're seeing more disabled people in entry level roles on a part time basis so you dig down into that further and and you say to people well, do you actually want to be in this role is this what you want to be doing and 9 times out of 10 the answer is no, I have so much more talent than this, but this is all I could find. This is yeah. all I could do. And it's about that massive argument about 
it's it's a rhetoric that I kind of live by is the equality of option and opportunity yeah. is that it, it's it's one thing to say right this disabled person has now got a job great really good starting point you know it might build someone's experience it's great to add on CV and you know it's it puts someone in a better financial position tick tick yeah. tick of all those positive things but actually has that individual chosen that job because that's all they could get as the only employer that was understanding of their situation. It's the only hours that they were able to work because they couldn't find something flexibly in their area. Postcode lotteries of what's available to them. Mm-hmm. But it's that's exactly what a think tank does is we look at those data and we actually extrapolate our own and say, the picture isn't necessarily how it seems and we need to make you alert of this and, and be the disabled voice on behalf of the community and say, hello, please listen to what we are saying because you know the decisions that are being made and the data that's coming out, who has been asked, who was consulted for those decisions, who did you talk to? Please don't tell me it was a group of 50 people who've got no lived experiences of being disabled themselves or being surrounded by disabled people in their immediate sort of vicinities. Please don't tell me that. Um, that that's kind of what we're there to do is to make sure that we are kind of knocking on the door constantly and saying, hello, you know, we've spoken to 500 disabled people and they are saying something very different or they are saying the same thing, but we just want to give you that little bit more of information that we think is valuable for what you're doing. I like it. Honestly, like politics in general blows my brain. Like I wouldn't class myself as very political at all, but then we have conversations like this and I'm like, oh my goodness, like maybe I should be screaming. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing is I think People are quite scared of politics and Mm -hmm. I think there's a real misconception of what it is and what it means. But at the end of the day, it's it's being able to sit there and say to myself, you know, I've I've touted long and hard for my entire life about ableism and and situations that have happened to me, whether it's, you know, medical gaslighting or it's being refused access to something or it's, you know, during COVID having to stay at home, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And it's every little decision in our lives actually stems from policy and politics. And it's very easy to forget that. It's very easy just to see it as the House of Commons debates and, you know, yeah. prime minister every five years. But actually so much more than that. And it's not just the people you see in scandals on the newspaper or whatever. <laughs> actually, it's thousands and thousands of people, you know, in the civil service generating these ideas and, and implementing these policies. And the key question is, is, it's how disabled people have been consulted for too long. It's been, okay, it's about health and social care. Let's talk to disabled people. And that's yeah. all, uh, you know, that's when we talk to disabled people. And we're sat here saying, actually, you know, we do apply to everything. If you're talking about transport, we deserve to be in that conversation as well. If you're talking about tourism, we deserve to be there as well. And that's the real, real missing piece of the puzzle that's happened for too long. For, for sure. And I think that's, that is what you just said about, being consulted on everything because Mm. it affects everything and everyone you know disability yes of course health and social care is incredibly important some might say it's more so important for the disabled community than for the non-disabled community but that is a completely different argument for a Mm. different point in time but even down to things like transportation housing Mm. everything you know disabled people need to be consulted on every single thing because it affects us because we are all alive and we're all living in this country together and we all have to do the same thing we all wake up we all go to sleep so in that time we are still doing our day-to-day which like you said is also affected by policy and procedure which is yeah it's just mad like it is (laughs) it's scary to it's scary to think that so many decisions are 
taken on our behalf and we live in a, a representative democracy society. Yeah. Brilliant. And we are, we, you know, uh, you know, I understand my privilege of living in a country that operates with that democratic system. But how democratic is it if my 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 choice of individuals to vote for don't actually represent me in any way at all? Am I am I voting in a representative system or am I voting in the closest thing that I can possibly get to it? And that's what's scary is that when you really analyze what representative democracy is, we're not living in a representative democracy society for disabled people. And that's scary. That's a scary thing to say, because, you know, in this country, we all recognize our privileges of, of living in a democracy mm-hmm. like we do. But actually, you know, if you break it down to that, that's quite a scary thought. Yeah, it, it is. And that's not to scare anybody saying, you know, we're going to turn into a dictatorship or anything like that. What, <laughs> it's to say, what it's to say is that we all need to be pushing hard to make sure that, you know, we are putting ourselves and if we've got a lot to say and we think we can be that person, there should be nothing that should stop you. There are so many amazing organizations out there where, you know, if you require some extra funding or you want some training or you want to be a counselor or a member of parliament, whatever it may be, yeah. there are so many levels to political involvement there are so many organizations out there that provide training and workshops. And quite often people sort of sit at home and think, well, I don't know anything about politics. I wouldn't even know where to start. So I'm just not going to do it. I'm too embarrassed to ask the question. I'm not going to go to a particular party and say, you know, this is what I want, but I've got no idea how to do it because I'm a bit embarrassed. You know, that's actually the norm. And I sort of encourage anybody that has an interest in, in changing legislation and policy to look at going into the civil service or look at being an elected representative, whether it's a PCC or a council or a member of parliament, we need more disabled people there. And I know there are so many people that are capable of doing it. Yeah. But people are scared to put themselves forward. And we need to break down that kind of barrier of perception, I think, is a real sort of healthy plausibility, which is just drives me insane <laughs> because it just doesn't, it doesn't at all, but it's such a perception that people have. And it, and it is such a perception because I think, you know, I was recently speaking to someone on this podcast who explained to me and I hadn't really thought about like how we work as in like the nine to five. And the Mm. reason that the nine to five is the nine to five harks back to the Victorian revolution. And I was thinking about it and I was like, oh my goodness, that is exactly like we have not Mm. changed. We have not evolved with the times when it comes to like the working schedule. So traditionally, if you're working, it's like you're nine to five or you're eight till four. That is your working hours. And Mm. that's because in the Victorian times, that's when there was daylight because they didn't have electricity. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy and like you know COVID came and it was so it was so devastating for people and the effects you know it, it's not worth thinking about what some people went through during that time but there were some good things about COVID if you look at it from an outside perspective yeah. you know we all learned to work virtually and as a society we better understood caring for people in our communities and checking on our friends and checking on our neighbours and understanding that people are more vulnerable in society. I don't particularly like the word vulnerable, but using it for this kind of situation. And as we came out of COVID, I sort of sat there and was like, this feels like a real turning point. This feels like people, people get it now. Like people understand. And we've opened up a whole world of technology and and being virtual and us being comfortable in our own homes. Fast forward a year and a half and it's all gone again. It's all going again. And we're going straight back to how we were. I was sort of sat there knocking my head saying, why are we not adopting the lessons we learned during that time of national crisis and taking something good from what we all went through? But we're not. And that's it's so frustrating because it really felt like a glimmer of hope for some disabled people that Mm -hmm. 
actually said, now everyone gets it. Now everybody understands. Now everybody's having to operate like how I operate on a daily basis. And they're, yeah. they're really understanding now. And it's going again. And we've gone back to, like you said, this kind of Victorian entrenched method of working. And frustrating. It's so interesting that what happened in the pandemic, like pandemic blanket term was absolutely horrendous for everyone. Mm. Like there's, I don't know anybody who had a good time during COVID. No. Factual. But the positives that came out of it for the disabled community were astounding. And yeah. a lot of people seem to forget that, you know, like, and I'm, j- I'm just repeating everything that you said. We learned how to work virtually so people didn't have to leave mm-hmm. their homes. We learned how to adopt different working hours because people had children. They were homeschooling. People were unwell. People got COVID. They couldn't necessarily work. And we learned so many wonderful things about people during that mm-hmm. time, right? It was a real, real time of learning all about people and how they work and how they live and how they survive and community and relying on each other. And I think you're right in to say that we have lost a lot of the compassion that we built up during that time because it was like everybody was lobbed in the exact same boat. We didn't really know where it was going and that was fine. But when the boat stopped, some people got off at the island who were able to and then there were some people left on the boat and I'm going to call this a disabled community because we're still on that boat Mm -hmm. and we were left and people didn't have forgotten that actually... That is the reality for a lot of disabled people in the UK. They don't have that ability to then transition back into the workspace because it was never available for them in the first yeah. place. Mm. And that's and just... I, it's, it it's, it's terrifying. And I remember when, because I was sh- sh- um, shielding, and I remember when, you know, we didn't come out in the first batch and everyone was going out to the park in the pub and we were still sat at home going, still shielding, you know, yeah. yay for us. Um, and then all restrictions ended and I was sat at home like, do I, can I leave my house now? I don't know. Like it's, it's not gone away. And I remember the first time I got on a train and all of a sudden face must have gone and everybody was just back to normal, you know, plodding along with their daily lives. And in, in one respect, that was brilliant because it showed that people weren't scared and, you know, we were yeah. standing up to it and we were facing the fight. But on the other hand, it was even now, disabled people are like, we we know it's around, we know it's there, yeah. we should still be scared of it. But it's it's very hard. It was almost like we were forgotten in that transition period. It was like, yeah. right, you can all go back now. And then offices opened up and everyone went back in. You can all use public transport whenever you like. They have to wear a face mask. We do this, this and this. And that was brilliant for everybody else. Mm-hmm. But it was, okay, what do we do now? You know, do we still stay at home for a little bit longer? I don't really know. The daily updates yeah. on the news stopped. So it was then hard to get information about what was happening. And it was just a really bizarre transitioning time. And I think it was just, it was it was a, a visual demonstration of how disabled people are forgotten in conversation so often. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would, I would completely agree. I, I, I have nothing more to add because I think that's just, that is exactly how it was. And there's no lie in what we've just said either you know we're not and there's no fluffing of the truth this is exactly what it is and what it's like but tell me do you think that you have a piece of advice for either a younger version of yourself or a younger person with the same disability as you I think my key advice would be I spent, it sounds quite, quite sad, really, and quite traumatic, but I've spent so much of my life scared, mm-hmm. scared of what people think of me, scared of where I'm going, 
scared of taking decisions because I think, oh, I'm not going to do that because I've, I've, you know, I've lost so many jobs because I've been in hospital for long periods of time and, you know, yeah. my sick pay has ended and I was really, really active and sporty as a child and was heading for GB, had to give it all up, all of this kind mm-hmm. of stuff that I was, I reached a point where I was so scared to take decisions. I ended up doing nothing and I ended up following the trend and following the path and kind of the worse my disability got, the more I retreated into myself. Yeah. And I had experiences of medical gaslighting as well, which made me scared to speak up and say something. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of went along with the path. And I think my my key advice to myself or anybody that's going through something similar or has been through something similar is don't be scared of yourself. Don't be scared of what people think of you. If people don't like you because you're disabled, that says more about them than it does about you. That that shows what kind of person that they are. And I've actually been surprised by how kind people have been to me and how, and not in a patronizing way, but how, you know, my best friends in my life and the group of people I surround myself with, they don't care. You know, I care more about being embarrassed. And I think, oh my God, they're going to be so embarrassed being with me. And I'm carrying a rucksack full of, you know, a feeding tube and it's a bit awkward. They don't care. If they did care, they wouldn't be near me. And it's, don't preemptively assume what everybody else around you is thinking and have that fear constantly because it, it, it really digs down into your mental health and, you know, I was so embarrassed about what I looked like and I was so embarrassed about going out and so fearful of taking decisions is don't let that fear stop you because if you have something degenerative you know where I am now at the time when I was 15 I thought I was so alone I was never going to get better and god I don't understand how it can yeah. get worse so I didn't take decisions and now I sat here as a 25 year old and say I wish I had done it when I was physically able to and now that I'm not I wish I could reverse the clock and make that decision. But if yeah. someone had said that to me when I was 15, you know, I wish so much that they had done, but no one had ever said it. Yeah. And I think that's such a key piece of advice. Like, don't be afraid of yourself, especially, yeah. especially surrounding disability. Like, you know, the non-disabled community equally don't be afraid of yourself. Go out, pursue dreams, pursue yeah. goals. Amazing. Like smash it. But, you know, people with a disability often get left up. Like we've spoken, we get left on the back benches. That's nothing new, but don't be afraid of yourself. If you've got something to say, or there's something that you want to do because mm. your disability should never actually come into that. If it's what mm. you want to do, you will find a way to do it. And like, exactly. that sounds very like find your inner peace and you will succeed. It's not that it's if you have got something that you want to say, something that you want to do or a goal that you have in mind, just pursue it as much as you can. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's very easy. I've had so many conversations about this with, you know, found disabled founders and entrepreneurs about, you know, we're all disabled and we're all working in the disability diversity accessibility section. Mm. Are we doing that because we wanted to, or are we doing it because we felt we had to, because, you know, that's where our natural expertise were. And yeah. it's a really interesting question. And I wholeheartedly believe that disabled people we have a very unique set of attributes we can think outside the box we we are amazing problem solvers we're incredibly Mm -hmm. determined people these are characteristics that people should be looking for in their employees you know even if you want to be a founder of your own organization go for it you know you you think differently to other people and actually your difference is a power here so utilize that utilize the power that you have that other people work so hard to find other people work so hard to train themselves to be those problem thinkers to be resilient to to be determined you already have that so use it to your advantage 
Oh God, this is such a seamless transition. <laughs> so my next question is actually, do you think that you have a form or a positive trait from your disability? So like I always say I'm incredibly tenacious and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that's down to the fact that I only have one hand because I want to always get and prove, prove not so much, but I always want to get something done. And I I feel like I'm, I go after things a lot. And like, if I don't succeed, it's probably not because I haven't tried hard enough. It's probably because I needed to either take a step back or it just wasn't the right fit. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, do you have something similar? So mine is, I always say is my body operates at about 10% and my brain operates at about 110%. It's almost <laughs> like, because my body's so slow, it just isn't, isn't doing it for me. Yeah. My brain has almost taken over and compensates for the energy I'm not using physically. I'm using it mentally. Uh-huh. So I, I find it very, I sort of say that my sort of ability, my ability that's come from my disability is that I'm able to focus and I'm able to, to really dedicate myself to what I'm doing at that time, because I'm so determined to do it. And I'm using, you know, the power of my brain that I have. Yeah. And that's all stemmed from the fact that my body's not doing it. So all the energy has <laughs> gone up into my brain to say, right, let's do this. Let's focus, get on with it. You can do this. And when I know there's something that I want to do, just do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if that also stems from, you know, having that lack of confidence with the way I am physically. Mm-hmm. I've kind of diverted that to my brain and said, right, you know, be confident in what you're writing, be confident in what you're saying and just do it and get on with it. And I think it's, I don't really like the word disability. I prefer sort of different ability because I, I think disability has now generated such a negative connotation of mm-hmm. what it means. And I, I want us as a community and as a society and whole to kind of regain control of what that word means and it not be, oh, she's disabled, you know, yeah. something a bit wrong um, and re- kind of regain control of that word. But, you know, seamless transition into the powers that disabled people have. And we're, we're a unique set of people and we're all so different and there's so much variety within us under the big umbrella that actually... Yeah society should be utilizing the talents and abilities that we have and not not outcasting us purely because I wasn't born like you were born or you know I had an experience in my life which which, which changed the, the pathway that I was on but that doesn't mean uh-huh. you know I'm not a good person and I'm I, you know I can't I can't still do things whatever that may be whatever I choose to do yeah and it's interesting because I really liked what you said just there about just because I wasn't born like you doesn't mean mm. in, in essence doesn't mean that I'm not as worthy as you are because that's ultimately what it boils down to. Mm. And I was <laughs> I always have this thing. So I always think there are a certain set of questions that people ask and it's it's like on a an, an level it's annoying and it's also semi-intrusive. And But people don't necessarily realize they're doing it right because they want to mm. seem like they're being inclusive or whatever. They want to feel like they're being a good human being but I do have a particular set of questions that when Mm -hmm. someone asks me I'm like this is annoying unnecessary and intrusive Mm -hmm. so I have a new one recently someone asked me if they could cut up my food for me whilst I was out at dinner so (laughs) but I I was wondering and I like to ask people these questions because it's all Mm -hmm. different do you have a particular set of questions that every time you hear it you're like not again for goodness sake literally all the time so you know in in, without trying to be a bit TMI and a bit graphic yeah so I no longer eat anything Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I used to have feeding tubes that was fed by kind of feeding liquid that went into my stomach and my gut. I no longer have that. And I'm uh-huh. fed by TPN. So it goes straight into my veins. It's a bit like having a fluid drip if you go into hospital. But yeah. I do, you know, I'm, I'm nil by mouth now. Yeah. So people's favorite question to ask me is, so if you don't eat anything, do you still go to the loo? And my answer is, well, quite clearly, yes, because, you know, it's not just food. But the amount of times I've been in situations where there's like, you know, large amounts of people and I've been asked, you know, without being too graphic, so what comes out if you don't eat? And I just think, none of your damn business. That's, you oh know, my God. Be intrigued, you know, pull me aside and let's have a chat about it because I want to educate people about, yeah. you know, when you talk about feeding tubes, it Im- immediately goes to JEDG and NG tubes and there's not much awareness of TPN uh-huh. in general, but there are ways to do it and there are ways to ask. And, you know, it doesn't offend me, but I just think I'm actually more embarrassed for you now that you've asked that question because yeah. Oh. Yeah. That, so that's, that's mine is, is what happens when you go to the loo. That, that's, that's my, the my thing is, that's like not oh. what I would imagine to ask you either. I'd be like, Oh, like, can you feel it? Is it sore? Yeah. Like all of these kind of things, but no, people just dive mm-hmm. straight in. So can you share it? yeah <laughs> yeah literally, uh, yeah, literally is, do you share and if you do what comes out and I'm like if you really want to know we can have that conversation <laughs> but it's not a conversation for now yeah it's people do not have that filter do they and like okay. you know I'm 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 fine with it and I always find it funny because I think you know and I and know an element of you is asking because you are genuinely interested and actually yeah. if I was sat there I'd probably be thinking the same thing like subconsciously I'd go like yeah I wonder how she gets to Lou but I wouldn't. You wouldn't yeah, say wouldn't, it out loud. No, I'd just keep it to myself. I would just keep it to myself. Like I wouldn't ask a general person on the street who maybe, you know, looks a bit bloated. Did you have diarrhea this morning because you look a bit bloated? I, I wouldn't do it. So why are you feeling like you have the right to do it to me? It's bizarre. Yeah. So that's my one. I honestly like. It's amazing because people sent like, and this is purely from doing this podcast and I ask everybody this question, Mm. is that there's like, people tend to either ask about sex, toileting, or are you, are you still a child? That tends to be like the main three that people love to ask. And I'm always so intrigued. So I'm like, how how does your brain work for you to go to those three things immediately? Mm. Like, Like, how does it, how does it happen? But everybody has different experiences and I'm, I'm just always intrigued to listen to what someone else yeah. is because nine times out of ten it's quite funny and as a yeah. disabled person I can appreciate the humor around it and not like laughing at it but like laughing with you because exactly it's quite funny and and, that, and that's the key to it you know there's there's so much conversation in society now about you know disability humor and race humor and gender humor and sexuality humor and, and is it okay is it not and speaking purely on behalf of my own opinion, and I know lots of people agree with it and lots of people don't, but my own opinion on it is, is if you're coming at it from a perspective of you're not making fun of me, you're making light of the situation in the sense that you're destigmatizing, uh-huh. you know, the connotations around it about the fact that I don't go to the, to the loo in a normal way and I don't eat in a normal way. And actually your purpose of it is educationary and your reducing the stigma around the fact that something I do that's part of my daily life is a little bit different I'm okay with that if you're Uh laughing with me and you're not laughing at me when you start laughing at me then I've got a problem with it and I know lots of people think differently so I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody else but you put it so perfectly as you know I'm laughing with you not laughing at your situation because then that you've really dehumanized me as a person and you've, you've made me an object of a joke over something that's 
you know, I've got no control over and, and is just who I am as a person. And that, you know, it starts borderlining into the eff- offensive. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So I have one final question for mm-hmm. you. And that is, Celia, can you say that you're disabled and proud? I'm disabled and proud. Very much so. And I think I live, you know, I have some very weird and wonderful things that, you know, I don't use the word they're wrong with me, that are different mm-hmm. about me. And yeah. I have met and interacted with very, very few people that have the same things that I live through. Yeah. And actually that makes me proud to almost be different in the sea of different that I've, uh-huh. that I've, I wear my label with pride. And I think if I had had the opportunity to speak to people when I was younger, I think I'd be a different person than I am now. I think I, you know, I'm still working on my confidence. I'm still working on my mental health and I'm still breaking down my own barriers that I have. Yeah that I just wish, you know, I'd had something like this to listen to when I was younger and been able to listen to somebody talk about the fact that when they go to the loo, it's not, you know, the standard yeah. way and all of this to make me realize that there are other people out there that are proud to be disabled. And just because I'm different, I shouldn't be proud of who I am as a person. I think that's kind of the headline line of it. Oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on today. I honestly, I've learned a lot and that's good because I like learning. Um, I'm, I'm someone who really thrives off learning and learning about disability even, you know, because as as you said, and as I've said previously, is that all disability is completely individual on the individual person, right? You could have two people who have the exact same disability, but the experience is completely different and I think it's fascinating how it works into policy and the work that you're trying to do and I I thank you for that and I think there's only going to be good that comes from this and I can't wait to see where it takes you and thank you so much for giving up time during your day to come in thank you for having me and it's amazing that you've provided this platform for to hear so many different stories as well and that's such the key isn't it is including the variety of disability itself yeah well thank you so much (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of disabled and proud if you've enjoyed the show then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts it really helps us to reach more and more people each week plus if you've got a particular highlight then i'd absolutely love to hear it tag me on your insta stories at disabled and proud podcast